Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of Karl Marx's 18th premiere of Louis Napoleon reading group series. Today is Saturday the 4th of July 2020 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. We continue with Marx's lambasting of the Social Democrats in Chapter 3, The Defeat of the Petty Bourgeois Democracy. This week I have the new patrons Red Schmoo, Bobby Schonger, Winston Scheuler and Swedish Tanky who upped his pledge level to thank. If you like today's episode and want to hear more of this type of thing, perhaps you could consider becoming a patron. For only $5 a month, you get two patron-only episodes every month, the regular episodes a few days early, and the right to vote on the next reading group series. Your support really does make the show possible. If you want to see the clip of Charles and Camilla looking like a pair of weirdos that we mentioned during the show, the link is in the show notes. Okay, let's jump back into the discussion. Okay, I'm going to read this bad boy. Let's move it on, move it on. Let's do it. Okay. The Royalists in coalition carried on their intrigues against one another in the press, in Ems, in Clermont, outside Parliament. Behind the scenes, they donned their old Orleanist and legitimist liveries again and once more engaged in their old tourneys. But on the public stage, in their grand performances of state as a great parliamentary party, they put off their respective royal houses with mere obeisances and adjourned the restoration of the monarchy in infinitum. They do their real business as the party of order, that is, under a social, not under a political title, as representatives of the bourgeoisie order, world order, not as knights of errant princesses, as the bourgeois class against other classes, not as royalists against the republicans. And as the party of order, they exercise more unrestricted and sterner domination over the other classes of society than ever previously under the Restoration or under the July monarchy, a domination which, in general, was possible only under the form of the parliamentary public. For only under this form could the two great divisions of the French bourgeoisie unite, and thus put the rule of their class, instead of the regime of a privileged faction of it, on the order of the day. If they nevertheless, as party of order, also insulted the republic and expressed their repugnance to it, this happened not merely from royalist memories. Instinct taught them that the republic, true enough, makes their political rule complete, but at the same time undermines its social foundation, since they must now confront the subjugated classes and contend against them without mediation, without the concealment afforded by the crown, without being able to divert the national interest by their subordinate struggles amongst themselves and with the monarchy. It was a feeling of weakness that caused them to recoil from the pure conditions of their own class rule and to yearn for the former, more incomplete, more underdeveloped and precisely on that account, less dangerous forms of this rule. On the other hand, every time the royalists in coalition come in conflict with the pretender who confronts them with Bonaparte, Every time they believe their parliamentary omnipotence endangered by the executive power, every time, therefore, that they must produce their political title to their rule, they come forward as Republicans and not as Royalists. From the Orleanist Thiers, who warns the National Assembly that the Republic divides them least, to the legitimist Berrier, 
who on the December the 2nd, 1851, as a tribune, swathed in a tricolored sash, harangues the people assembled before the town hall of the 10th arrondissement in the name of the Republic. To be sure, a mocking hero calls back to him, Henry V, Henry V. Oh, so good. So good. I, I looked up that reference to Henry V to clarify exactly what it means. And of course, Henry V was a extremely successful commander in the war against the French, but his victories were completely Pyrrhic because even though he was successfully nominated as heir to the, to the French throne, he died inopportunely and was never able to actually inherit it. And of course, you know, England never did conquer France. I, I liked the, I, what about this bit here? Okay. About how they res- insulted the Republic. Instinct taught them that the Republic, true enough, makes their political rule complete, but at the same time undermines its social foundation, since they must now confront the subjugated classes and contend against them without mediation, without the concealment afforded by the crown, without being able to divert the national interest by their subordinate struggles among themselves and with the monarchy. So today, like, bourgeois parties don't seem too afraid of ruling politically on their own. Like, is it that they were just not used to the game? I, I think we we kind of see a substitute for this in the form of, uh, like, parliamentary proceduralism or gerrymandering. Th- these kinds of uh, obstructions of pure democracy that the bourgeoisie uses in republics, even if they cannot resort to the parliamentary power. You know, in contrast, somewhere like the UK, they very much do resort to monarchical symbols to deflect criticism of the regime uh, as a whole. Marx is here showing his theory that democracy would actually cause, you know, the proletarian social conflict to come to a head. And you know, at one point he thought the petty bourgeois Democrats could be an ally, you know? That's one of the major changes between the Marx of the Manifesto and Marx after 1848. One of the major changes is he gets more and more anti-state over time. I, I think we should look at this here as an example. Here <laughs> we have... This, this is the symbol that we were just uh, gesturing to that Carl was mentioning. Let's have a, let's <laughs> have a look. Here's our sovereign symbol. His fucking his room, his house is papered tartan. The wallpaper is fucking tartan. So, so for context, this is at eight p.m. once a week. The uh, the public go out and clap the NHS care workers, and so here we have. This is the best bit when they come out and they seem very uncertain of of how to clap, what clapping is. <laughs> People have only ever clapped for them. They probably never yes, clapped in their fucking exactly, lives. Exactly. Look. Clapping, clapping for others. Oh, is yes. Oh, this this so is fun. Oh, my God. You've never seen someone clapping for others that were so clearly clapping for themselves for clapping for others. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Precisely. Yeah, it's as, it's as shambolic as Boris's uh, mopping routine in the last election. Nevertheless, the, the regime persists. But yeah, I mean, you know, the Queen's address recently about the crisis uh, is, an, is like a little bit less farcical example of that. Well, I think the other thing that's interesting is particularly because when Johnson got ill, the press 
covered it in a kind of almost Hobbesian sense, the, the right-wing press at least, that, that in Johnson there was this totemic kind of sovereign figure and all the hopes and fears of the nation were somehow tied up in whether or not he'd get better. It was extraordinary seeing the way that they were reporting this. It was really strange. So you could still see that this, the kind of the, the grip to which the psyche of certain sections of the British population perceive kind of sovereignty is kind of, it is monarchical, but it's also kind of vested within the, the vestige of the person of the prime minister. I don't know if you remember any of those headlines, Tom, but it was like really strange. There was like literally like on, because he he came out of hospital, I think, on a Sunday, and it was like on the Sabbath, he rises, sort of this kind of stuff. Have you guys ever seen what Americans do when a president dies? Yeah. Oh, God. Or when a John John McCain dies? Or, or, yeah, with a significantly popular, even though not particularly effective senator dies. We we get out all the the, the affairs, the accoutrement of bullshit. Royal oh, when, Mag- when Maggie yeah. when Maggie Thatcher died, there were like parties all over Britain burning. Yeah, that was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it was not true when Reagan died. No, it's not true when Reagan died. It was basically like like a Kim Jong Il's funeral. Yeah, you know, it really was. Uh, it was yeah, it was God. years later. Years later, the the cult of Reagan was still so powerful. You watch shows like Entertainment Tonight, and just you know the halo around Reagan was still very much visible. It was very creepy. Yeah, one thing I was thinking as well here about that, it mightn't necessarily have been so much that they didn't know the game, the parliamentary game so much, but like they still had, and like the Orleanists and the and the legitimists, they had a contradiction that needed to be resolved, you know? And like that, that, that contradiction doesn't exist today. So they don't have to play that same game. So it has been resolved for them in the Republic and in the fall of the Republic. It's been solved for them. Okay, who wants to take the next one? Uh, Sophie, do you want to do a read? As against the coalesced bourgeoisie, a coalition between petty bourgeoisie and workers had been formed, the so-called Social Democratic Party. The petty bourgeois saw that they were badly rewarded after the June days of 1848 that their material interests were imperiled, and that the democratic guarantees which were to ensure the effectuation of these interests were called into question by the counter-revolution. Accordingly, they came closer to the workers. On the other hand, their parliamentary representation, the Montagnier, thrust aside during the dictatorship of the bourgeois republicans, had in the last half of the life of the constituent assembly we conquered its lost popularity through the struggle with Bonaparte and the Royalist ministers. It had concluded an alliance with the socialist leaders. In February 1849, Bequin celebrated the reconciliation. A joint program drafted, joint election committees were set up, and joint candidates put forward. The revolutionary point was broken off and a democratic turn given to the social demands of the proletariat. The purely political form was stripped off the democratic claims of the petty bourgeoisie and their socialist point thrust forward. Thus arose social democracy. The new Montagne, the result of this combination, contained apart from some, some supernumeraries from the working class and some socialist sectarians, the same element as the old Montagne, but numerically stronger. However, in the course of development, it had changed with the class that it represented. The peculiar character of social democracy is epitomized in the fact that the democratic republican institutions are demanded as a means 
not of doing away with two extremes, capital and wage labor, but of weakening their antagonism and transforming it into harmony. However different the means proposed for the attainment of this end may be, however much it may be trimmed with more or less revolutionary notions, the content remains the same. This content is the transformation of society in a democratic way, but a transformation within the bounds of the petty bourgeoisie. Only one must not get the narrow-minded notion that the petty bourgeoisie, on principle, wishes to enforce an egoistic class interest. Rather, it believes that the special conditions of its emancipation are the general conditions within whose frame alone modern society can be saved and their class struggle avoided. Just as little must one imagine that the democratic representatives are indeed all shopkeepers or enthusiastic champions of shopkeepers. According to their education and their individual position, they may be as far apart as heaven and earth. What makes them representative of the petty bourgeoisie is the fact that in their minds, they do not get beyond the limits which the latter do not get beyond in life, that they are constantly driven theoretically to the same problems and solutions to which material interests and social position drive the latter practically. This is, in general, the relationship between the political and literary representatives of a class and the class they represent. There is a goddamn lot here. Let, uh, Esri, p- pick it apart. Well, starting from the bottom, this is the general relationship between political and literary representatives of a class and the class they represent. There is a certain theory of class interest that's being complicated because, you know, the idea of class interest doesn't originate with Marx. It's, it's usually imputed to Marx, right? This one-to-one, oh, you're petty bourgeois. That means you have a, a small-minded, you know, you, you only care about your own little business. Actually, if you, listen, if you talk to, like, shopkeepers, small shopkeepers, they develop their whole worldview on, like, people like them getting a fair shot, even though they're really talking about people that are often their competition. Like, Marx is sophisticated about class interest. The Marxian notion of class interest is like the heart of his theory, I feel like, like the, the heart of what makes Marx a valuable thinker, why he could reflect on an event that, you know, I mean, it's history to us, but what was this to him? Journalism? Polemic? Like it was very contemporary. Yeah, there's a lot going in here. Like James, when I'm I'm reading, um, what, I'm reading some of this stuff here where it talks about how the, let's have a look, where does he say, where they once you have like this kind of political idea of a social democratic thing, when you take the revolutionary point of the proletariat has already been broken off. He talks here about, you know, the, the kind of coalition that's left. I, I really like this. The content is the transformation of society in a democratic way, but a transformation with the bounds of the petty bourgeoisie. Only one must not get the narrow minded notion that the petty bourgeoisie on principle, wishes to enforce an egoistic class interest. Rather, it believes that the special conditions of its emancipation are the general conditions with those within whose frame alone modern society can be saved and the class struggle avoided. Like, my God, that is so apt for today. Like, yeah. like 
That's like yeah. all these people on Twitter with like a British flag and a European flag after it. You know, it's all these like the the worst form of liberals in 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 the UK that they they don't see themselves as actually being in a class. They see themselves like as literally representing what is what is just the proper way to do things in yeah. society. You know, like a friend of mine who you know, went to college with me and similar, you know, skilled laborer, I suppose you call him, maybe PMC. But like, he, you know, he says similar things to me, but he, he says, yeah, you know, ideology is dead. You know, you can't like, that's just like 20th century stuff. And you're like, kind of going, like, do you see yourself as being outside of ideology? And I, I swear to God, I think the vast majority of this middle class democratic socialist, I think a lot of these people actually think they are, outside of playing social class interest roles class works best when you don't realize it's there right i mean that's like i i don't want to go all all to area and structural interpolation on people because i don't really believe that but there is a there is a way in which everybody who has class interests likes to believe that they are not acting off of of the interest of things that are structural and they are acting on their own immediate personal beliefs and while there is no one-to-one determination and i don't think marx thinks that either in aggregate there definitely is like yeah i can't predict what an individual person is going to do according to their class interest but i can definitely predict what groups of people are probably going to do according to their class interests right stochastically just sort of like yeah there's a pretty good chance thermodynamics um, baby thermodynamics it's interesting that he says what makes them representatives of the petty bourgeoisie is the fact that in their minds, they do not get beyond the limits, which the latter do not get beyond in life. That They are constantly driven theoretically to the same problems and solutions to which material interest and social position drive the latter practically. So, I mean, you know, this isn't an entirely like a class essence thing either. Like you can think and behave and like, and, you know, theorize in this petty bourgeois mode without coming from that place, you know, your social position may be as different and education, you know, maybe as different as heaven and earth. Both of these theories are there, like the structuralism and this sort of like, yeah, but that's kind of like not, you know, it's not really the only determinant in the idea world, in the theory world, if you keep confronting the same things and again, if we page up, it's, it's, this is about the peculiar character of social democracy, epitomized in the fact that democratic Republican institution are demands as a means of not doing away with the extremes of capital and wage labor, but of weakening their antagonism, transforming it into harmony. I mean, God, like a, a lot of very sophisticated Marxists end up in that category. Like they have all of the theory in the world and it ends up feeding into that notion. I mean, you know, you don't have to be from like Derek, just like Derek. Oh, just like yeah, Derek. yeah, yes, yes. That's what I was saying, of course. Um, but yeah, but you don't, you know, you don't have to be petty bourgeoisie to get there. Yeah, you can be a political or intellectual representative of the class. And that, you know, like you can have someone like maybe uh, Sanders is a good example of this. Someone who's like kind of on the fringes of the petty bourgeoisie, not really petty bourgeois himself but is absolutely in the mindset of the petty bourgeoisie. One one thing here, there's a line here where he says, why the petty bourgeois ended up siding with the 
proletariat in the Social Democratic Party. What are these material interests that were they were badly rewarded with after the June days in 1848 when the pros got their asses kicked? Anybody know what how they felt they got shafted there? Like the Constitutional Assembly pretty much tried to shut them out. The Legislative Assembly did likewise. So, yeah, like they just weren't in power. They weren't on the side of the proles, though, at that time. They didn't rise up. No, 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 no. They they were first against the proles and then decided to uh, ally with them, you know, once they realized that they weren't getting their piece of the pie. One one other thing I was hoping to get some clarity on is when he mentions the socialist leaders, where he says that Bonaparte and the royalists are allying with the socialist leaders, who is he actually referring to there? Paul Leblanc. Like Blanqui. Paul, mm. No, he's not referring to Blanqui. He's referring to Paul Leblanc and the workhouse socialists, the people who – they actually are kind of who invented like a lot of our modern notions of social Louis, democracy. Louis Blanc. Louis Blanc. Louis Blanc. Yeah, not Paul Blanc. Yeah. But Louis, yeah. like – yeah, my, my mind is rattled today, but like the Blanc is who he's referring to and the workhouse socialism that emerged right before 1848 that only existed for like two months. They immediately tried to work against them. They put a yeah, guy who, who wanted to, to ditch them. It, they got a guy in. They did that trick in the wire. Do you know when they get that, like the new commanding officer in to close down the division? It's like, yeah. Uh, that's what they did. Instead of actually closing it down, they just made they got a guy in to make life so fucking miserable. Everybody would just kind of leave and the thing would fall apart. Well, and they also played proto-feminist against it too, because what actually they how they actually got it to eventually shut down was it was falling apart, and then they allowed women into it, and then like the popular sentiment went against it. So yeah. I worked in a bank in Ireland and we were part of a research kind of a wing, an architecture wing, like an IT research and architecture wing. And the management basically wanted to shut it down, but they didn't want to actually have to deal with fucking shutting it down. So what they did is they sent in a wrecker and this guy came in and he wrecked for a year and a half and everybody left the department and there was nobody left. It was amazing watching it. Literally, after about six months, people started leaving. And then by the time I left, there was nearly nobody left. There was about five people out of about 30. Everybody just went, oh, yeah, he's 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 like a wrecking ball. He's just going, going in there to do nothing and then annoy you. Classic management technique. Wow. I didn't realize I came in like a wrecking ball was a strategy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Louis Blanc was also on the constituent assembly. Is that right? Correct. He was the leader of yeah. the basically the, yeah. the socialists, the left in yeah. the constituent national assembly. Correct. But they got shafted. They got they got take. They didn't get any representatives in the executive, so they were kind of kept out of power. The one thing they got in was the work. You know, jobs for the boys. Work how work. What do they call them? Work um, workhouses. I think. Well, they call them national yeah. workshops, is what they call yeah. them. But, but, yeah. but they were effectively like workhouses. But unlike the workhouses in in England, they were actually like you got paid. It's the idea of making the state the employer of last resort. It's MMT wow. job guarantee. You know, fine. Yeah. Well, that thing only lasted like twenty five years after the war. All the Western countries essentially had job guarantee, full employment tech, uh, policies, and then they just got rid of them. You know, it took him longer after World War II to get rid of them than it did after the, what's this, the fourth French Re- Revolution? I don't know. How many revolutions is this? Is this four? There's a few. But right from the beginning, social democracy gets its pants pulled down, betrayed, and its efforts uh, sabotaged and underfunded. 
I mean, seriously, the reason why we have the word communist is because Marx was hesitant to use the word socialist because Blanc lost so bad. Like, they, he comments on this in the communist, in, in, or Ingalls comments on it in the mm-hmm. Communist League reflections. Is like, that's why they use the term and they're kind of interchangeable. But like, the French socialists were, you know, we wanted to differentiate ourselves from them because so many of them are petty bourgeois and kind of dumb. It was mentioned earlier in the discussion that in the manifesto, Marx suggested an alliance with the petty bourgeoisie. So is that contrary to what he's saying here in this text where he's trashing the alliance of the petty bourgeoisie? I think it comes from, I mean, this is, this was this is post. Yeah, this is the post. Well, this is, the, was the other one, was the, was the Communist Manifesto not written before these revolutions? It was written before yeah. these revolutions. It was before 1848. Yeah, right before it. The other thing you got to remember is the Communist League, like half its membership were artisans and, and like Ingalls and Marx weren't clear if they were petty bourgeois or not, actually. So like he, that comes up in Ingalls' reflection that Ingalls talks about, oh, you know, they were artisan craftsmen. So they had, you know, kind of petty bourgeois interest but there was also proletarian in in the movement so he wasn't it wasn't just like a theoretical position it was literally what the, the league of the just and the communist league were like they have members who are petty craftsmen in there right but you know they're sort of aware that you know again it's not like a class essence theory that determines all your ideas you can you can as a as a Marx, as a, you know, lawyer's son or whatever, like you can. Pudgy fail son, as Shane would call him. He's a pudgy fail son. Right. Yeah. You can, you know, try to suss out the class interests of the proletariat and, you know, try to promote it as skeptical as we all are of doing that to some degree because of how it comes out without the notion of class interests. This whole, this whole thing is like, it becomes farcical once you cut that cord. Has Shane got the best uh, like slurs and and curses of any of the people on the Emancipation <laughs> Network? I'm like, jealous, he, frankly. He, well, he, what, which is ironic because Shane is like the most sweetest, wholesome person. Also, uh, I don't know. He's got a very evil laugh. He's got the e- most evil laugh. <laughs> they, what do you call somebody in one of the podcast area? Six six toed pony fucker. There was six toed pony fucker. <laughs> what? Kyle, he's got to have some more than that. They do. They yeah. do. They do. Yes. Hey, sorry. Uh, sorry. Sorry. Uh, I, 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 I definitely appreciate Shane bringing the sass to our podcast. Let's move it on. So, Kyle, you want to take this again? After this analysis, it is obvious that if the Montaigne continually contends with the party of order for the Republic and the so-called rights of man... Neither the Republic nor the rights of man are its final end, any more than an army which one wants to deprive of its weapons and which resists has taken the field in order to maintain possession of its own weapons. Immediately, as soon as the National Assembly met, the party of order provoked the Montaigne. The bourgeoisie now felt the necessity of making an end of the democratic petty bourgeois, just as a year before it had realized the necessity of settling with the revolutionary proletariat. But the situation of adversity was different. The strength of the proletarian party lay in the streets, that of the petty bourgeois and the National Assembly itself. It was therefore a question of decoying them out of the National Assembly into the streets and causing them to smash their parliamentary power themselves before time and circumstances could consolidate it. The Montaigne rushed headlong into the trap. 
The bombardment of Rome by French troops was the bait that was thrown. It violated Article 5 of the Constitution, which forbids the French Republic to employ its military forces against the freedom of another people. In addition to this, Article 54 prohibited any declaration of war by the executive power without the assent of the National Assembly, and by its resolution of May 8th, the Constituent Assembly had disapproved of the Roman expedition. On these grounds, Ludlulolin brought in a bill of impeachment against Bonaparte and his ministers on June 11th, 1849. Exasperated by the wasp sings of Trier, he actually let himself be carried away to the point of threatening that he would defend the constitution by every means, even with arms in hand. The Montagne rose to a man and repeated this call to arms. On June 12th, the National Assembly rejected the bill of impeachment and the Montagne left the parliament. The events of June 13 are known. The proclamation issued by a section of the Montagne declaring Bonaparte and his ministers outside the constitution. The street procession of the Democratic National Guard, who, unarmed as they were, dispersed on encountering the troops of Jean Garnier, etc., etc. Uh, a part of the Montagne fled abroad. Another part was arraigned before the High Court at Bourges. And a parliamentary regulation subjected the remainder to the schoolmasterly surveillance of the President of the National Assembly. Paris was again declared in a state of siege and the democratic part of its National Guard dissolved. Thus, the influence of the Montaigne in Parliament and the power of the petty bourgeois in Paris were broken. Yeah, that's pretty devastating. Like, there's one thing I get from this, like, I know we did the revolutionary strategy series before the last time, and there is, like, the picture I got from it was, like, some book of famous people playing chess, and it was actually, one. it was Marx. <laughs> It was like they had some stuff of Marx actually playing. There's a record of chess games between Marx and other grandmasters at chess. I don't know if you know that. So you can actually, yeah, <laughs> wow. you can actually play them. And he's really fucking good. And you can tell he's good. Yeah, because he's got strategy. And like, he, he's like, you read this, no joke. And I, I, I always come back to it. But like, the reason why I, I like revolution strategy and the reason why I like this, a lot of it is, you know, I come from like a kind of game theory background. And it's obvious as, as hell what's going on here. To me, like, you, you know, you can look at a lot of this stuff that the modern left does and you can just game theory it and show how utterly pathetic all of the standard lines are for most left parties are utterly pathetic. Uh, bourgeois ideology, Tom. Don't don't think too hard about it. <laughs> yeah, you can't no. do game theory. That's bad. May I continue reading to the end of the this uh, defeat section, the, like a pricked bubble? So just so we get the whole thing in here. All right. So Lyon, where June 13 had given the signal for a bloody insurrection of the workers, was, along with the five surrounding departments, likewise declared in a state of siege, a condition that has continued up to the present moment. The bulk of the Montagne had left its vanguard in the lurch, having refused to subscribe to its proclamation. The press had deserted, only two journals having dared to publish the pronunciamento. The petty bourgeois betrayed their representatives in that the National Guard either stayed away or, where they appeared, hindered the building of barricades. The representatives had duped the petty bourgeois in that the alleged allies from the army were nowhere to be seen. Finally, instead of gaining an accession of strength from it, the Democratic Party had infected the proletariat with its own weakness 
And as usual with the great deeds of Democrats, the leaders had the satisfaction of being able to charge their people with desertion and the people the satisfaction of being able to charge its leaders with humbugging it. Seldom had an action been announced with more noise than the impending campaign of the Montagne. Seldom had an event been trumpeted with greater certainty or longer in advance than the inevitable victory of the democracy. Most assuredly, the Democrats believe in the trumpets before whose blast the walls of Jericho fell down. And as often they stand before the ramparts of despotism, they seek to imitate the miracle. If the Montagne wished to triumph in Parliament, it should not have called to arms. If it called to arms in Parliament, it should not have acted in parliamentary fashion in the streets. If the peaceful demonstration was meant seriously, then it was folly not to foresee that it would be given a warlike reception. If a real struggle was intended, then it was a queer idea to lay down the weapons with which it would have to be waged. But the revolutionary threats of the petty bourgeois and their democratic representatives are mere attempts to intimidate the antagonist. And when they have run into a blind alley, when they have sufficiently compromised themselves to make it necessary to activate their threats, then this is done in an ambiguous fashion that avoids nothing so much as the means to the end and tries to find excuses for succumbing. The blaring overture that announced the contest dies away in a pusillanimous starl as soon as the struggle has to begin. The actors cease to take themselves au sérieux, and the action collapses completely like a pricked bubble. Who did the? I mean, did, the burns continue in the next paragraph, but uh, we'll, we'll, let's maybe discuss this part. Yeah, like I really liked at the start of the previous big long section we did. There's a bit where he talks about how for some people, like so for for pure Republicans, the Parliament itself was what they were trying to defend, but not for the not for the Montagne. They were really trying to use the mountain. Like or so the, they thought they were trying to use it as a as a weapon for social democracy or socialism, right. you know, which is I think that's a, a quite a big difference. But like they fell so headlong into a trap from a position of quite quite amount of power, it's kind of shocking. And isn't isn't this always the case with the social democrats that a portion of their power lies in the streets, a portion of their power lies in the parliament. But they never sum up to being more than just two separate powers. And often the parliament ends up suppressing the street power. Always. Always. No, no, no. Nick. You see, the real road to power is in the parliament. The streets, ah, they're just going to get in the way. Like, trust us. We got this. Hey, you're fucking up our victory. That's always the way, isn't it? Isn't it like that it's like a, there's a strict delineation there. It seems like that any of the actual achievements as well, to make it worse, any of the achievements of these social democratic forms are usually based on the fear of a third class, which is a radical class. Is that true? Generally, that's that's what happens. The more radicalized proletarian class is scaring a faction in the parliament to side with the social democrats to make the reforms possible, as well as some of the more conservative social democrats. I'm going to try to be fair in my historical broad generalizations, but that is to be what normally happens. Yeah, this is kind of the angle from which I'm skeptical of McNair's from our last series in Revolutionary Strategy, his critique of Luxembourg and his endorsement of a Kautskyan argument 
that goes something like this. You know, if you have a mass strike, right? You can only hold out for like a few days, or even if you hold out for a long time, make the economy scream, you know, there's not really like a mechanism for, you know, transitioning to a new, like, social, I don't, social I, order. A new social I would say social order. order. I was like, order, order, order. Yeah. The word is well, order. Party. And new I'm like, party of order. The thing that's difficult that he's claiming yeah, is yeah. that it's difficult to go from mass strike to smashing the state, basically. And, you know, he's, I mean, that's a good point, but very frequently what you get in history, in the history that it, he's drawing lessons out of, like, you know, okay, I could see the logic of this, but frequently in history, you know, the people, like the, the party doesn't want to, you know, lead this like transition out in a, this revolutionary fashion and in line with what the proletariat is ready to do. It's sort of got its own calculus. Now, I guess this is this isn't true universally, but very frequently it takes a social democratic route instead. This sort of, you know, we would know it from like reformism and Bernstein and whatever, like Marxists working their way back to this strategy of kind of symbiosis between classes. To kind of elaborate on that, like to what extent will a central strategy just kind of either by necessity go towards a left strategy or just kind of slip back into like a right socialist strategy using that yeah. McNair, using that McNair schematic. And I think this is like a historical example of that. This is an example of that, of that tendency to like slip right wing. And, and McNair would probably try to argue that parties that end up not wanting to smash the state are right according to his schematic and not center but I, yeah, I know. I didn't even I had, say. I didn't even say he's wrong. I'm just like, hmm, just well, makes I'm, me suspicious. Well, I, I'm I'm skeptical too because then why hasn't that happened? Why hasn't that Kotskin strategy ever really like panned out in history? Using the same kind of uh, empirical metric that he's citing for mass strikes not working. Right. You know? Right. Exactly. And I'm not but, even on board with like, oh, we have to do mass strike. That is the strategy. I'm just saying I'm skeptical of the whole thing, ultimately. But his neo Kautskyan strategy hasn't been tried. That's fair. That's fair. That's, that's like, the point. It's a foot forward as a new strategy. Like, I think that's his whole point. It's like why, taking why the best in it. Of, the, the part that's... Why doesn't it? Like, why hasn't it? Why hasn't it? Because, you know, we, we live in time and history. If You know, things have to come out. Right, you know, but like, okay. What we just, what we we end up in these like situations. There's you know repeated choices that we make in the game theory way. Like, what is it about these situations that creates that collapse of the center? Like, that's yeah, but, the question. But like the thing is as well is though like you know say for example like in poker say for example you know or in chess you know uh, theoretical and strategic leaps are made, new insights are gained, people come in. And they they mash things up, you know. So new political strategies can come into also different terrain, but I think more likely just new strategies will be formed. And like we can't just say, well, why didn't this? No one tried this one before because they have to actually be tried in history. You know, we're still dealing with the fallout of the last political decisions that were made in eighteen fucking eighty. Literally, it's, it's that that is washing still through our society those decisions so we can't be too hard on like ourselves saying oh well nothing's worked so far nothing, well, nothing can work I, and i'm not trying yeah. to be hard on, our, on ourselves i'm just like 
I'm just kind of thinking, I think we're both just kind of questioning like the McNair strategy, like, and I mean, okay, so I guess I'm trying to refresh, refresh my memory. Like, what is the difference between Neil Kotskian and Kotskian argument? Like, as far as I can recall, Don't. the part of the strategy that's about using, getting the Democratic majority and then dissolving the, the, the special party of armed men and that triggering a, a, a like a socialist civil war, that part that comes straight from Kotsky. Am I wrong? Or Engels? The, the, the bit they made the mistake is that they went in with the right. And his essential difference is the state and don't join in with the right. That's his main difference. That's the that's the original sin. Except I mean, that he assumes that there is only one right that you could join in with, and that is the parliamentary right, which I mean, the parliamentary right of social democracy and the jingoist, I guess, is what he's defining as right there. I mean, in addition to being purely politically determined, I also just think if you do that, then you don't actually, he doesn't really deal with the fact that the working class in any advanced capitalist nation never, ever, 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 ever backed the left of social democracy. Mm -hmm. It did not happen anywhere on earth. What do you mean? The, the, they didn't back the left of social democracy or right. those to the left of social democracy? Both, actually. They did not back insignificant numbers of the left of social democracy, which is why in those groups they were usually minority factions. And when they separated, they did not back the communists or, or left socialist groups in mass either. They only did in areas that were not really advanced capital. And that's... There was large communist parties in Europe, though, Dar Derek. Yeah, but they didn't ever win. So so. But that Who doesn't cares? mean cares? But it cares. doesn't win, fail. Like, <laughs> but that's not that's not a good that's not a good argument. Like I'm not making the case that they they could have had the correct strategy, but I'm saying like you playing you 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 get into a a battle, you're playing poker, you get into a situation, you can play right, so things can just fall the other way and you lose. It doesn't necessarily mean. Look, the communists initially probably would have won the election had it not been for a fraud in the what early forties, late forties. I okay. think that this is a game that's been repeated many times as similar outcomes and, you know, without some kind of change in the rules or, you know, change in dynamic. I mean, unfortunately, you know, the old dynamics of the 20th century are gone. Oh, great. Great. Um, but like without something changing, I think you're likely to continue getting these outcomes where, you know, people don't listen to the Martovs, you know, they don't listen to the, you know, the people that get all these questions, right. And, you know, why, why are these electoral outcomes how they are? Why do things split along the lines that they do? And to some extent, Tom, I mean, you know, you're not wrong. The influence of LaSalle and then, and then Lenin, like, you know, it never really goes like, you know, it's like, I can't even say it's shaken out in the wash now when we're in vastly different strategic situation. Like, it looks to me like, I don't know if it's an error because, you know, we haven't seen all of history yet. You know, we haven't seen the next thousand years Right. But like it seemed that if it is true, the error of Marx was not seeing the tendency for people to go with the nation state ahead of the international class. Now, you could also make the case that the, the international proletarian class has to learn its lesson from, you know, its failures. Okay, well, in the history, thing is that you'd have to actually make it clear that the international proletarian class had immediate interest and in learning those failures. And frankly, given the bounds of nation states, they don't. 
I'm sorry that I'm about to say this, but like one, I consider the I consider the the Stalinist that McNair is willing to see as part of the left that you should be and willing to be in coalition with as actually a different form of right that you should not be in coalition with. But two, I that concur. There, yeah, that, I that concur. there's a bound choice. There's a bound choice Siri when you're dealing only in terms of nations that's going to lead people towards social democratic light reforms yeah. and mild nationalism. And it kind of works out mathematically in a way. If you read yes. Adam Pirarski, it hurts because it, it hurts. It maps real well. And it's mathematically maps. It's like, it's a set of choices and it's actually a rational choice. And that's, yeah, I, I'm, I'm just like, I'm fucking amazingly hyper skeptical. Like you, you, you do that. You do the game well, theory I mean, or say the, take the prisoner problem, for example, Derek, right? How you come my, the, my wait. prediction odds on every election has been based on a lot of this stuff and I have better odds than you. Like just, just got to point that out. Like, well, okay. I got a clarifying question. No, no, wait, I'm talking. I mean, now I was saying something. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, a, the strategies haven't changed. So of course they're going to fucking give the same fucking outcomes. B, you take the prisoner problem. You know the one where, you know, mm-hmm. if you both coordinate together, you'll both get free. And if you don't, you fuck each other. You both go to prison. And everybody, it's in their rational interest to fuck each other and go to prison. Right? But when they do the, the math of repeated, when they repeat the experiment, it flips the other way where they should both do it. So the logic games that okay. you can set up, like... These are games, just to show you, they're not the system. Well, I, I, this is what this is what I, I I agree with you. The thing is, though, when you say this, we're still always dealing in terms of nation states, and the only way to get past that is international cooperation. However, the other problem with the McNair formula is that, frankly, the Western European um, unions. And actually, the unions of Eastern Europe, because ironically, they end up liquidated by by the Soviets in a really kind of backwards way, but they do. And the North American unions are in no way mass enough to coalesce the form workers' parties. And so you skip, okay, you skip the historical step where those workers' parties emerged historically as coalitions of unions and go directly to political parties. Yeah. All right. You can't do that. There's nothing to merge with. It does not exist. And so, like, the whole McNair formula is based on two things. One condition would be true if it existed, but it doesn't. And two, it's calculus. It He doesn't propose a proper way to deal with the fact that even within the international, you are still acting as national parties, and there's still incentives to screw each other, particularly if one party achieves power First and tries to dominate, i.e., the Russian part of the Soviet and the second and the second and third. I mean, particularly the third international. Okay, right. and That's so a big you need problem in order in order for the the comparison to the iterated prisoners dilemma to work. You need a consistent actor that is going through both prisoners dilemmas in a way, or some you know set of institutions that's capable of learning a lesson in that way. That's what you need. That's where you know people want to have. And, you know, revolutionary patience has a, and that whole like way of looking at organizing has its, you know, really has its like in, in, in my life, at least, you know, the reason that I thought that that was important was watching things spring up and die away and make the same mistakes or, you know, seemingly make the same mistakes. Like, you know, and it seemed like there wasn't, seemed like the enemies of the people rising up, you know, they had coherent institutions. They could learn their lessons. They could, you know, accumulate, you know, tactical data, like, can we 
You know, where is our actor? None of the actual left political strategies in my lifetime have been different than ones that were that Marx is probably going to talk about here. None. Anybody? So, I, I, would, I would agree with you. My, own, my, my big thing with that is just that no one has proposed a counterstructure for which this stuff could learn since the fall of the Soviet Union. And even with the Soviet Union, you had the other prisoners deliver, dilemma, a.k.a. its tendency towards Bonapartism and the centralization of the state and the creation of a non-democratic bureaucracy that you can't get rid of and thus basically forms a new class that no one really wants to deal with. You pick one or the other, but you never deal with both. And the other thing is like no one's talking about how you really reinvent the workers movement and when the industrial proletariat model that those were based off of and those forms of organization were really really were only possible because of doesn't exist until you got that you got nothing yeah you got you got nothing because you got to fucking build the street you got to build shit up it doesn't exist right now but it's like like it didn't exist in 18 fucking 49 when marx went to the fucking library you know, doesn't mean that they might have had strategies. But that's not that's not just what I'm saying. I'm also saying that the form of, of labor that, that was based off of doesn't exist anymore. So you can't go back to that either. So right. you got yeah, you got different forms. So you got you got different things that need to come out of stuff. Look, the the, the key think, yeah. the key point, the key point, like, is that capital always will end up in crisis. Yeah, and that there is antagonisms there. Now, are we saying that antagonism is just forever stuck in this fucking nationalist bullshit or is it possible to get out of it? You know, if we're Marxists and we think it's possible to get out of it, if you, if you don't think it's possible to have it, look, there's no point in, in fucking reading any of this shit, if you ask me. Well, I mean... I mean <laughs> like, I if you come to that conclusion, you might as well just fucking go... Well, and, that's, and, that's, that's not, it's not worth being sad. Just, it, you know... I know, but it work, kind that of... doesn't work, this doesn't work, that doesn't work. That's, I know, that's, but it's, it's not the same as saying, you know, there's no it, way it, out. It's different because you're saying like that. I say, look, whatever, fucking, I'm not a McNairist or anything. I think that it's a reasonable strategy. That's the way I would put it, right? Given the conditions, that if it had proper conditions for it, it doesn't have them now. Say it, it would be an interesting oh. to see it. Be, it'd be interesting to see it tried. It's dependent on other shit, right? But like that, the, we're not like the thing is to say is like there are strategies that can be tried that haven't been tried, you know, or else we're just stuck in fucking capitalist dystopia forever. Well, I think I think to clarify what Derek and Ezri are saying, they're not saying that there is no strategy to get out of this national determinant, but I think what they are saying is that they don't think McNair's strategy can do that unless I'm misunderstanding. Yeah, you, you got you got I think McNair's strategy would have could have possibly worked if it was actually done the way articulated in like 1920 uh yeah. yeah. but but I don't even think that. I don't Mark, think so. like, like, I mean, honestly, like, if you like, the, like, like Martov was articulating something like this, basically, like, something like what Lenin is getting at in like 1918, because, like, like, after the Soviet state is created and af after the Russian Civil War starts, you know, Martov drops his like Kautskyan sort of pretenses and being like, well, all right, I accept this new Soviet state. It's better than the white army, you know, whatever. But like, let's keep, you know, trying to make this a democratic project. Let's like have pluralism. Let's get rid of the death penalty and all this stuff. Like, you know, there, there are people that like, you know, try to square the circle in history and God, they just get trounced. They just get trounced and forgotten and buried. 
under statues of like, you know, Lenin or a big mustache. Well, I mean, yeah, to be fair to Lenin, Lenin actually did respect Martov even after that and was really sad when he died. But, yeah. you know, everyone's sad when everybody dies. So Too little, too late, dude. Yeah. It was very sad when he shot him in the head. No, uh... <laughs> <laughs> it was sad when Stalin, den- uh, you know, used the power that Lenin gave Stalin to essentially like d- deny him aid, deny Martov aid. That might have saved yeah. Yeah, basically Stalin kept the money that he was supposed to appropriate to. But anyway, anyway, um, yeah, we're way um, off track here, aren't well, we? I mean, yeah, I mean, this is not called the fucking revolution strategy thing. Who brought this motherfucker up? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, 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 I have not really had anything to add to the discussion about McNair. But while we're talking about this catastrophic defeat of the Social Democrats. I do think that Marx's extremely harsh denunciation of the Social Democrats here, I think, could also be applied against the socialists in Chile. And right now, I'm doing the a reading group series on Brain of the Firm over on General Intellect Unit's Discord. Uh, we're reading weekly chapters. And towards nice. the end of that book... Beer, Stafford Beer, tries to formulate a strategy for how the Chilean socialists could have won. So I'm very interested to read that and see if it squares with the kinds of criticisms that Marx has here of like, well, if you're going to do a revolutionary confrontation, why didn't you think of the army and why didn't you arm yourselves, right? So that's just my thought on it for this moment. I don't know exactly what Beer has to say yet, but I'm interested to see where that goes as kind of like you were saying, Tom, a alternate strategy from the ones that have been tried. Because they were trying something different in Chile. It just, it didn't work at all. So like you need to split the army. It's the only reason why, uh, look look at the difference between Venezuela and Brazil. Venezuela are still in power because they have, Basically, I think they have political education in the at the at the base level of the army. It's probably a big reason, and the generals behind. There is there is a corresponding strategy problem with the army, where the army eats up more and more of your resources and what you do, and that happens in um, North Korea, and really it's happened in Venezuela. It's basically, I mean, it's basically a Bonapartist state because of the relationship with the army, but it makes it almost you, you can't coup it. But it also doesn't have to follow the will of the workers' councils that empowered either, and doesn't. But it's also I mean, highly isolated as well, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like, even though there was that, is it the pink tide of South America or whatever, they still weren't very integrated. There were just a few fucking political elections, really. You Look, know. all I have to say at the end of this is uh, this is giving me flashbacks to when daddies were arguing during the McNair series. Stop arguing, daddies. <laughs> Stop it. Am I, am I a daddy? Who's the <laughs> <here>? <laughs> Derek, I'm actually older than Derek. Am I the oldest? Am I the oldest loser here? Who's who else here? Kyle, what age you? Thirty-five. Kyle. Thirty-five. God. Kyle's I would not have guessed that. James. I'm only thirty-six. Oh fuck's sake. Forty-two. My God. <laughs> well, see, I'm we an old. Doug, with Doug, we'd have a we'd have a you know someone who's about to be fifty, and so we could have blamed it all on him. That's the Doug always Doug makes you feel good when you get into this age game. I don't know. I don't know if we need a third daddy though. I'm just throwing that out there. 
I yell at Doug less in public than I yell at Tom in public, and I yell at Tom less in <laughs> private than I yell at Doug. But you got I never knew you were such a conservative, Sophie. You only want two daddies. Uh, yeah, I'm maintaining the Boudreaux family form. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> took the words out of my mouth, Tom. On this episode, you heard the team tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. The artwork for the show was created by the Korean artist and author of the 2019 Marx Engels illustration book. You can check out links to his work and Twitter account in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science and Swampside Chats. (laughs) 